Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Candace Cahill. She's a multidisciplinary artist from Denali, Alaska, and the author of Goodbye Again, a memoir about losing her son twice. A lifelong learner, she utilizes traumatic experiences from her life to provide insights into self-compassion and healing. Known for her ability to engage diverse audiences, her stories are tragic yet uplifting. She delights and inspires audiences with her storytelling expertise through speaking engagements, written work, songwriting, and as a seasonal national park ranger. When Candace is not telling stories, you can find her walking in the woods, playing her guitar, and reading books. Welcome, Candace. Thank you so much. It's uh, so good to be here with you. I'm really happy you're here, and I'm excited to dig in and talk about your memoir. So can you share a bit about your memoir, Goodbye Again, for those listeners who have not yet had the chance to read it? Yes. So as your introduction uh, said, uh, my memoir is about losing my son twice, first to adoption as an infant, and then 23 years later, after we met one time face-to-face, he died in his sleep. Um, The memoir really is a a case study on grief, uh, grief of child relinquishment and child loss, um, looking at the similarities and differences, and the impact of generational trauma, and looking at human resiliency, um, finding our way through the pain uh, to, to get to hopefully the other side. Yes, yes. I mean, there are a lot of different veins running through this. And of course, the the motherhood aspect is primary in, in my eyes after reading it. And the idea of your own relationship with your mother, which we'll get into, and this incredibly powerful and painful experience that you went through that shaped the rest of your life. So when you started off in college, and you know, when you were in your career early on, you were not a writer. So then you started to blog later on as this grief overwhelmed you and you went through this experience. I'm wondering how long the process was for you from blog writer and processing your grief with words to realizing, you know, I think I need to spend more time on this and turn this into an actual memoir. You know, my writing, I've always written just not necessarily for other people. Um, Mm -hmm. It's always been a way for me to find clarity it, it just, by putting it on the page, going back and looking at it, I see connections. I see things differently. And, mm-hmm. you know, so after after Michael died, I literally was just floundering. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So writing was natural for me to turn to. The blogging began mainly because one of the things that I have always done is look for other people's stories of you know, resiliency or just their life stories to help me find my way. It's almost like I look at books and memoirs in particular or personal stories as sitting down next to somebody and having Mm -hmm. a conversation. And so that's what I was looking for. And I just, I could find so little things to help me in my unique situation. So when I started writing as a process for grieving, I was like, I should put this out there for other people because maybe it will help. Um, Mm -hmm. Since I find help that way, that was my whole reason for for starting to blog. And I never never intended that it would end up being a a memoir. 
when I decided to pursue a longer version, like a manuscript length work, it was like a little over seven years after uh, Michael's death. And I, when I looked back and looked at the blog, it actually became this really incredible resource because whether the, the pieces that I had published on my blog or just my notes, they mm. literally put me back in the headspace I was in when mm. I wrote them. And just like my journals from when I was younger, they did the same thing. So it was really beneficial and really helpful. But the, the span of time, seven to eight years from between the blogging mm-hmm. and then actually working on a memoir. Did you ever encounter doubts or worries that maybe you wouldn't be able to do it or finish it? Like, did you ever have any imposter syndrome with it? Well, when I was writing it, it I never really intended to publish it. It was more, it was really a deep dive into getting to the next level of healing. It was really a cathartic experience for me. So, so I was like, I never really thought that I would pursue it. But once I shifted and was like, okay, this is, this is publication worthy, quote unquote worthy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, absolutely. The, the uh, doubts came in and it's like, okay, nobody's going to want to read this. I'm not a good enough writer. You know, I think all of the messages that so (laughs) we all get that, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We all get that. And so it was, you know, it was a matter of sitting down and getting a really good core group of other writers to Mm -hmm. bounce, um, you know, chapters and different things off of who could then come back to me and be like, okay, this is really good or this piece is great, but this is where you need to work. And really looking Mm -hmm. at it from, from a much more objective perspective. Mm, Yeah. You know, what's really interesting to me, and this comes up for me sometimes when I talk about memoir, but as the memoirist writing the memoir, you have perspective and you're sharing with the reader what you've learned and what you have come to understand to an extent of, of your experience. And yet, you know, the person that was going through all this from the young, young mom who got pregnant and didn't plan the pregnancy, who was making a decision to give her son up for adoption, you know, you didn't, you had Joyce, who is the therapist that you leaned on. Um, Joyce is her name, right? Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it wasn't like you had a ton of reading material or you understood at the time that what you were experiencing was part of this whole process of giving a baby up for adoption like it's a it's a very real and specific experience yes and and I felt you know in reading your memoir I really I feel like you really put me there in terms of how torn you were and all the different parts of the experience that you went through and as you wrote the book what was it like for you emotionally through those different periods and sections that you were revisiting? It was really painful. Um, it was really eye-opening mm-hmm. because, you know, the, the, the eye-opening, I think, was actually happened first. I would sit down and, and just free write. That was really how I started, was just trying to put down, you know, what I remembered, what my feelings were, you know, all of these things. And and I would come back and reread it the next day and, and see things that I didn't really know that wasn't really, I was surprised mm. by the things that I saw and the feelings that, that came out that way. And then when I went back to, to re you know, kind of do some editing and, and, and flush it out and make it so that it would be digestible for someone else to read, I would get done with those days and, and come out of my, my workshop and, my partner would be like, he could tell 
Mm. when I was dealing with particularly difficult memories or when things were easier. He, he just could, he got a feeling from me in terms of my energy even. Mm-hmm. And, but it was a very, I took, I approached it very methodically. Once I made the decision to work on a, a, a manuscript length work, I sat down and, and went to it like a job and mm. really uh, followed a program that, that I had just put together for myself so that, because I, I was worried that I would get stuck mm-hmm. in some of these, mm-hmm. you know, these past memories, these get stuck in, in, in the past. And yeah. I didn't want to do that either. Yeah. Did you find compassion for yourself as you spent time in these memories? Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think, was a big part of learning was reading my, again, the the free writes that I did and reading through and hearing and and getting a sense of of the sadness and the grief and the loss and never having recognized that back then, you know, in particular when I'm talking about the relinquishment. and, And I was just like, wow, I was so alone and I had so little... Nobody was helping me. Nobody was what really seemed to have my best interests um, at heart, mm-hmm. and 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 I could I could look back at myself almost as a separate person mm-hmm. and show compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, so it was just a matter of time and effort to bring that past me um, and and include her in my current me. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And I I felt like. You know, I'm not the memoirist in this case. I'm I'm the reader, but I felt like I was so happy because I felt like I saw that on the page that you were able to to be able to look at yourself during those really difficult experiences where you're isolated and you didn't have these resources or this perspective or this understanding of how difficult what you were going through was. I I was hoping, I think, subconsciously that writing it and seeing yourself that way was helpful to you or healing to you. Yeah. And I do, I absolutely believe that it was. Um, yeah. it, it gave me a whole new perspective on young Candace and what she yeah. went through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, I know that I would like you to read this excerpt we talked about. And I think that maybe it, it deserves a little bit of a setup because, you know, maybe without giving away your whole story, you can just, you know, kind of give a little bit of the timing and background and how old you are at this point and why this meeting is so significant. Okay. And then you can read it. Okay, yes. So this scene uh, is when I get to meet my son, Michael, for the first time uh, after relinquishment. So he was relinquished as an infant. The last time I saw him, he was five days old. Um, so this is when he's 20 years old. So I am 41. And we had had an open adoption um, beginning in 1990. But all, all that meant was I would get an update once a year with letters and pictures. Unfortunately, those updates ended uh, Mm -hmm. when he was about eight. So I have been without any information for 10 years. And uh, we ended up meeting two years after he reconnected with me. So he's 20 years old, I'm 41. And this is (laughs) my experience of basically getting to meet my son, um, like actually holding him in my arms for the first time was one of the most profound experiences um, that I've ever had. So this is a section from the scene of us getting together. Mm -hmm. Michael has five sisters, but only one brother, David. 
his dad explained, and tons of nieces but no nephews. A gentle smile spread across his face, rounder than when I'd first met him, but his blue eyes still held kindness. I think he feels a little overloaded by all the estrogen levels in the house. He reached over and playfully scuffed Michael's hair. Maybe, I directed my answer to Michael, we could have a family gathering and you could come to St. Cloud. Plans had already begun to take shape in the back of my mind. Eh, that sounds cool. After about half an hour, Tom got up from the table, my husband. I'm going out to check on Luna. I'll be right back. Why don't you just bring her in the house, David asked. I leaned back in my chair and sighed with relief, but immediately refocused on Michael. He entranced me. I couldn't keep up with the conversation as it continued, Luna now in my lap. This boy on the cusp of manhood, tall yet still soft around the edges, was wondrous. Heat suffused my whole body. Pride? Oh, and the similarities. His hands looked and moved just like mine, ruddy and thick, punctuating his words with dramatic flair. His lips, like mine, were plump when in rest, but thinned when he talked, and naturally dark red. Women will be jealous, I thought. That lick of hair above his right temple, angled just a little off by the cowlick? Mine. Michael and David leaned towards each other as they spoke, and I sensed mutual love and respect. And although I could see myself in Michael, he was like David, too. It was fascinating to witness the parallels in their mannerisms, body language, and speech styles. Once, they both placed an elbow on the table simultaneously, a mirror of each other. In that room, nature and nurture were on full display. Over the next two hours, we chit-chatted about grandparents and cousins, family health and illnesses, and high school shenanigans. Last winter, I shoveled snow all around the neighborhood wearing my kilt, Michael said. Only my kilt, he smirked at David. I've got a picture of it, actually, David chuckled. Hey, let's move to the other room and look at the photo albums. My shoulder brushed up against Michael's arm as we moved through the doorway, kicking up the bees again. Thank you. And um, I should mention, I guess, you know, the bees are sort of your your nervousness and energy, right? That you yes. talk about in this scene. I realized yes. I started you at a place where the bees hadn't yet appeared. So yes. I want everyone to know that's not actual bees. Um, so this is such a pivotal part of your story. I mean, it can't be, you know, overstated. So when when did you begin to work on this particular scene when you were working on the book? Was, was this something that you approached with any particular you know, concern or intensity because of what it meant? Yeah, so interesting that you select this scene because this scene was the very last one to be written. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just, I didn't know how I would be able to describe Mm. this is one of the most beautiful days of my life and still is. You know, meeting my son as an adult you know, my, my instinct was always to say, there's no words. There's no words to describe how I felt. But I needed to find a way. And that's where the bees came in. It's like, how do I explain to somebody what was going on inside my body? And the best way I could find was, you know, that, that, that it began with this humming of a honeybee in the distance that came closer and suddenly took up 
presence in my chest. And suddenly it became two bees and it was 10 bees and a hundred bees. And they just were buzzing around inside there. And it was warm and all expansive at the same time. But that was the only thing I could think of to try to explain to people how this scene yeah. was both excruciating mm. and beautiful. And so physical, right? Like yes, your yes. body is just completely transformed being with your son for the first time since he was a baby. You know, what comes up again and again is is your partner. I don't know if that was his real name in the book it is. or not. Yes. Yeah, Tom, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. He, uh, I, I'm struck again and again by how supportive he is and how much he seemed to know the right thing to say and how to handle you. And and sometimes in the book, you talk about being frustrated with that, that he's right so much of the time. <laughs> Do you have any sense at all? I mean, I have to ask where he under where he got this understanding and ability to have this kind of perspective on what you were going through. And I, I don't know. All I know <laughs> is that when, when it comes to Michael, Tom has always been patient kind that ne- has never expected anything and you know i've had a, i've had a couple of people particularly from his family who are like he is not that great you, you know <laughs> you, you you make him out to be this great guy in the book and i'm like you know he's not he can really be a pain in the butt too but when it came to michael he just had this mm. ability to sit with me not demand anything from me but also help and guide me in in mm. really the best ways possible I'm Mm -hmm. just, I'm so fortunate um, that Mm -hmm. we ended up together. Yeah. I felt that way for you reading the story. I just felt so glad that you had Tom. And and I wonder, actually, this makes me think, did you end up writing any scenes at all where there was friction between the two of you and take them out? Or did you know from the beginning they, they didn't, you didn't want them in there? I've, yeah, there, there's only a couple of places where I physically show my frustration with his, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, there were a couple of other ones, but I didn't, I guess they ended up not um, serving the story. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's exactly what I was wondering as we started talking about that, that that might just sort of get get people to chase down a rabbit hole that they don't need you're not trying to focus on your marriage here that's not the most important thing and it doesn't sound like it built up into anything that created disturbance in your life enough to distract us from the regular story right right yeah 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 exactly so i really want to talk also about jane who was michael's adoptive mother and how your feelings for jane evolve over time your understanding so can you talk about a little bit about that for, you know, context and then where you are in that process now. And, you know, if you learned any more about her relationship with Michael. So first of all, the hardest thing that I've had to do in all of this when it comes to Michael is learn self-compassion. I still struggle with reconciling my feelings about Jane. Basically, I I wonder how she could have done what she did. Um, But... (laughs) I have those same feelings about myself. Um, how, how could I give away my baby? How could I do that? And I actually know that I'm going to struggle with these, this issue for the rest of my life. In terms of Jane and Michael's relationship, I'm still learning about it. Um, I'm so grateful to Michael's adoptive family. They're willing to share. I mean, anytime I ask them anything, they are willing to share. But I'm still not quite ready to go to Jane and Michael's relationship. 
And again, it's because I'm still learning how to forgive myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I it's so tied in, tied in for me. My, you know, pla- placing my son for adoption, giving giving him up, relinquishing my rights. I continue to look at it as being, um, it was basically the hardest thing I ever did in my in my life. It was a it was a wise choice based on where I was at in my life. Um, but I still struggle to reconcile how I could do that. Um, I feel like I'm going around in circles. Not at all. No, Uh, not at all. I actually think it's really important. I don't think you can say it enough because I don't know, memoirs are not, you know, the, the book is a finished product, but our stories, our understanding of our stories continue, right? And they change all the time. And I always think this, that if you were to write this book in 10 or 15 years, you might have an even different view or perspective to add. Oh, yes, absolutely. I I already feel like if I were to write it today, it would be even, it, it would be different. There would be elements to it that are different. Absolutely. What you really do get to is that idea of holding more than one truth at a time. You really make a point of that in, in such a helpful way, I feel, in your book, that, that you can regret relinquishing your parental rights while recognizing it was the right choice for you. You could have anger about missing Michael's childhood and also know it was the best decision, and that he could have been angry with you and still want to know you. Yeah. So does that play out in any new ways for you now, or does that help you in ways now? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, the two things being true at one time, I see it everywhere now. I mean, it comes up in conversations. Mm. It, I mean, it comes up in daily activities. It, it's astounding to me. Um, and I think what it has done, the, the biggest benefit of it for me is it has helped me to find and articulate gratitude. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and for me, that has been such an, a significant mindset or a, a change of the way I thought. I, I, most of my life, and I think partly because I you know, grew up with a really rough background and you know, poverty and, and abuse and neglect and all those things, that I was always living in a, in a scarce, from a scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. There, there was never enough food. There was never enough love. There was, you know, all of these things and having to shift to, I have so much, everything I have, it's, it's Mm. astounding how privileged I am and uh, how lucky I am. And, Mm -hmm. and having that mindset allows me to encompass the the good and the bad at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, It has totally changed my life. Yes, and your relationship with your own mother was tough, and I I, I couldn't let the interview conclude without talking about that just a little bit. You know, I have a a very big interest in Mm mother-child stories, and it's something that has shaped my life so much. I mean, mother-child stories shape all of our lives, and for me, any kind of rupture or adverse childhood experience element is always of extra interest to me, and you begin to see over the course of the book that not only did it you never felt like you could go to your mother for support and care, but that also you weren't able to mother yourself, which I think is part of the the complex people who haven't 
been mothered well have often is yeah. to know how to take care of themselves. And so as a result, you were really hard on yourself. And I'm wondering what mothering yourself is like now and what your feelings towards your late mother are now. So as more time passes since my mom died, um, the more compassion I feel for her. Um, she faced so many hardships, uh, so many blockades. She had so many things that, that either happened to her or happened around her. Um, and, and I've just really come to look at the fact that she did the best she could with what she had. And she mm -hmm. was not given choices like I was. You know, that, that, that wasn't available to her. So, you know, by extending kind of a, that grace to her, I think it's actually allowed me to do it for myself, to do extend grace mm. to myself. And, you know, and, and I also wonder sometimes, did I extend the grace to myself first or did she come after? I don't know. Mm. But whatever, whatever the case, it's working. You, you know, now when I, when I think back on, you know, young Candace, a little redheaded girl, freckle-faced, you know, and, and the things that she had experienced, um, as this innocent young little tired little child, I'm finally able to think back and reflect and look at her with kindness instead of shame. Well, at least mm. mo at least most of the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, and but again, I, I think it's totally tied up with the compassion that I've been able to learn to feel towards my mother. And I also think that you know when I look back at Michael and his role and, and influence in my life. And even though he wasn't present, he's impacted my life in, in so many ways and continues to. Um, mm. and yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to me. I think, do you ever find it amazing how you've come to adopt this, this perspective, this, this way of seeing your life and, and the gifts there? I, I consider myself, again, so fortunate to have been given the opportunity to, to reflect, A, have the time and the ability and, and, again, the privilege that allowed me to sit down and write all this out. I mean, my memoir that's been published, which is a very exciting and I'm very proud of what I've been able to achieve, even if it had never been published, I have gotten so much out of this. It's mm -hmm. just been such an eye-opening and growth experience for me. And yeah, it just being able to look at, um, again, my, I keep coming back to the fact that I'm so privileged to have been able to do this. So grateful for it. Yeah. And it is, it's funny, the, the mix, the different combination, because you probably were working on some of this stuff. Uh, you know, subconsciously before you were writing it or in therapy and things like that. And then yeah. writing it kind of enhanced that, right? So it just, I feel like it's a very healing process. Yes, absolutely. And I would, I would recommend writing to anyone, at least anyone who likes the act of writing. Some people don't care to do that, but, <laughs> um, but it really is an excellent tool for learning about yourself. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are some of the memoirs that informed your work or that you go to to help you as you write? Um, so I think back and I know that when I first read All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung, um, that was that was a turning point for me. That was right around the time when I decided that I was going to write a, a memoir length. And I think part of my draw to that is, is she's an uh, adopted person. 
So mm-hmm. she was she was able to basically present her story in I thought a really beautiful way, and I was like, oh, I I, sh- I could I could do that. Some of my favorites are kind of the I think tried and true. I love educated. Um, you know, there's a story of somebody who'd been through this you know pretty horrendous childhood and came through strong and then wild <laughs> because uh, you know being accepting yourself for who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, more recent ones that I've really enjoyed when I was her daughter, Leslie Ferguson, I feel like her memoir really is a case study in the foster system. Um, it's a really some incredibly valuable information for people that, that work in child welfare. And then the burning light of two stars, Laura Davis. I thought she did a great job with mother daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yes, she really did. Um, wow, I love this because I haven't read some of these, but I have read others, so it gives me more for my list. Thank oh, good. You. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have any parting words of advice for memoirists working on their books? Uh, get a good writing group. Um, find a good writing group, which from my perspective was hard because I live in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. <laughs> right? Um, but I found an online group and it made all the difference to have It was specifically memoir related. So we were all working on, you know, legacy stories and it just having those outside influences in terms of objectivity, you know, Mm -hmm. not knowing the story ahead of time and, you know, the editing, you know, basic editing. I hadn't written, (laughs) you know, for a long time in this way. And uh, it was so beneficial to have all these different perspectives, um, both with the writing itself and the story. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And and Candace, where can people find you who want to connect with you? The best place is my author website, which is CandaceKale.com. And from there, you can access any of my social media, etc. Um, that, But yeah, that's the easiest place. Great. And I'll put them in the show notes so people can get that quickly. And thank you. Thank you so much for talking about your process and and what you've learned along the way and for for your vulnerability I really I really appreciate it thank you so much it's been so great to talk with you and I love this podcast (laughs) every time I hear a new one it's just like oh this is so great for people to be able to really dive deep into the process of sharing your story I really I really hope so I mean I love doing it and I I feel like every time I have a conversation with a different memoirist it's a different aspect of the writing process and tools and I'm really hoping people find it helpful like you say it is thank you yes thank you thank you for tuning in to let's talk memoir for more about this episode and my guest please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.